think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 113 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 114th episode. I'm Laura Carvano. I am Aidson Rainville. Oh, very good. Uh, and this week, uh, we are going to be doing our long-awaited mailbag episode. Uh, I think we're going to try to do these like twice a year, sort of December and June. Obviously, we sort of miss June here by, <laughs> by a little bit. It was uh, a really but busy... It's a, it's a moving target. It was a really it's busy a June target. for me. Um, I think, yes. I mean, both the combination of it being a very busy June, as well as June and COVID restrictions lifting, has, has I think, made yeah. for a perfect storm of... Not in the right... We've had other things going. Yeah, <laughs> Not the right time to ever sit down and record a podcast. You know what, guys? In, until we're getting paid for this, you, you're going to get some moving target <laughs> deadlines, and that's that's the reality of it. Um, yes. So that, that's that's what we're focusing on today. I do want to say that we'll, we'll probably try to have an episode up uh, to cover other goings on that have happened since our last episode relatively soon. Yeah, there's a lot uh, of... That's, that's the dream, anyway. You know, the, it's been a lot of shit the wrap up of going on. Let, let me just high level mention some things that have happened that we, that go, we haven't go touched ahead. on you know there's been the uh, scandals at uh, national defense there has been the non-passage of c10 i'm making the the dunking motion for successfully calling that where seemingly there no one in media was was content to call it months out um that it had absolutely no runway to to uh make it before the election um the election you know where conservatives are in the polls where electoral strategy is yeah will amos and his coffee cup um there is a great deal of <laughs> there's not much to discuss there <laughs> yeah, yeah. the other stuff though uh also the afn just elected its first ever uh female grand chief oh national that chief rather happened? that is as of today that has just happened 15 minutes okay, ago that's yeah why, that's why i'm not aware of it because uh, i've been busy reading our our dear uh listeners questions instead of on twitter which clearly you don't care about them as much as i do ah well you know i care about them very deeply um yes yeah, so there's a lot there so we will come back we also are thinking of doing a, a su- suggesting a book club episode but i think we'll we'll try to pick a book in between now and the next episode yeah um, i think our challenge in picking a yeah. book is one that is commercially available there's a lot of sort of old good old books in canadian politics that are hard um, to find. Are incredibly hard to find. Yeah, I have I have one in mind, and we'll, we'll actually discuss it later this episode. Which, but, which uh, one? Yes. Well, we'll discuss okay, it later we'll in the episode when we get to the uh, books right, question we'll, in the, we'll in the, the mailbag. <laughs> um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll have to come up with one that is commonly available and interesting. Maybe like uh, Eddie's The Way It Works in Ottawa or however it Oh, works. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. That is a good to one. To be determined. Very good. Uh, so I guess we'll just launch right into the mailbag. I didn't keep people's names, uh, and some of the questions have been sort of like mildly adapted to just be a little broader, uh, so we can talk about it a little more effectively. So if you hear something that sounds like your question, uh, but a little different, <laughs> it, it you'll, you'll just have to forgive question. us on that. You, yeah, you'll just have to forgive us on that. Um, so first question right off the top, who is a Canadian celebrity you guys think could replace Trudeau as leader of the Liberals once he steps down? You could answer for cons or NDP too. Um, this is a tough one because Etienne and I, uh, don't know anything about what's going on outside of politics. Fundamentally, <laughs> we're, we're fundamentally extremely hyper-focused people on politics and we have no idea what, like most people are talking about any given day. 
Um, so, uh, I don't know, is, uh, is, like, is Maurice Richard still alive? Is that guy still kicking? He seems like someone people like, I don't know. Rocket? Um. Yeah. What? Okay. That Wayne Gretzky? <laughs> is he a guy? Is, is he still alive? I don't know. Wayne Gretzky, clearly a conservative. Um. Yes, and also he's in California. What's so. challenging, I guess, about this question is that it implies a Canadian celebrity would replace Justin Trudeau. It also implies that we know anything about them. Um, yeah. uh, the dad from Schitt's Creek? I, I don't I don't know. Eugene Levy? Is that, <laughs> or is that the son? Eugene Levy is, is the father. The father. Um, yes. No, I mean, the closest... Also great in Best in Show, just for, for listeners. If you haven't seen Best in Show, absolutely treat yourself to that wonderful film. Is that about dogs? It is about <laughs> dogs, yes. It's a Christopher Guest mockumentary in the vein of Spinal Tap, but about a dog show. It's fantastic. Is it on Netflix? I don't know. How have you seen it? I presume you didn't... Not on... I I, I don't know. Like it, I've seen it a couple of times like over the course of my okay, life. It's okay, it's not like a year Highly old recommend. it is like... No, no, no. It's, a, it's an old I, I, movie, yeah. No familiarity with it on my side. Very good. So, well, wait, back to the question. I mean, listen, not that many Canadian celebrities ever end up in politics. The star candidates, when they do occur, are not truly stars. Um, the, cl- the only exception I can think of to this is Kevin O'Leary. Uh, so, yes. I'm going to give you three yeah. in recent Canadian political history. We have uh, Lenore Zane of X-Men. She doesn't count. X-Men oh, my fame. God. <laughs> Rogue on X-Men. Yeah, that was like 20 years ago. She was like a secondary character in a <laughs> a cartoon who then had a lengthy career in provincial politics. I don't think she counts. We have, uh, um, forgetting his name, but the NDP MP who was in 300. This also does not really count. Um, yes. Our arrows so that was, will blot out the sun. Of, I of also cannot remember army. his name, but he was the he was the, uh, Tyrone Benskin. Yes, Tyrone right. Benskin is his name. Yes, but he he got involved not through directly his work as an actor and and film personality, but in his work in the film actors union. Correct. And yes. I guess so I would I would say neither of those folks count. I guess Kevin O'Leary <laughs> is the third. Has anyone yes. else actually had like star quality? Well, like, are we like when you say star, like we're talking like celebrity? Celebrity, here. like who is the? Well, I guess the lady, uh, uh, Toronto Center Liberal MP, Marcy Ian. Um, it's yeah, like a I would Television, which then takes us down the rabbit hole of our dear Minister of yeah. uh, Natural Resources. Some, like, daytime talk show. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that counts. Okay, well. Le- I had one in mind just a second ago. As- astronaut uh, guy. Gonna, um, no, Mark, yeah, but Ken Dryden, I guess, as a, as a hockey goalie. Okay. Yeah. Ken Dryden. Uh, astronaut guy, what's his name? Mark Garneau. No, other, m- more modern astronaut other guy. Other one? Oh, uh, Chris Hatfield. Yeah, Commander Hatfield is probably... Commander Hatfield is probably the, like, long-term potential sleeper. Like, I don't think he's um, likely to run in politics in the next little while. He's sort of riding it out. But maybe when he gets bored of whatever he's doing, writing children's books or whatever it is, I think political parties would definitely have their eyes on him and have definitely probably tried to recruit him in the past. Yeah, I I mean, this is kind of like... 
I was Go ahead. Say, I know in 2015, I probably shared this story before. Um, the liberals had just on the eve of the election, the liberals had thrown sort of a, an impromptu press conference to announce a new candidate. And internally, we we're like, oh my gosh, is it going to be Chris Hatfield? And uh, no, it was Eve Adams. Um, so, oh. <laughs> quite, uh, quite a different caliber of individual it turned out so indeed indeed so i'm gonna take this question a little left field and say the reason that we don't see a lot of celebrities running in canadian politics is because like it sucks <laughs> like being being a public political figure is not good or fun like it's basically just people recognize you uh it, like this is the thing is like either people don't recognize you at all uh and that's the good situation or they do recognize you and you just kind of get heckled wherever you go um so i i just i it's not a fun way to live like you're you're in the public eye like your family gets dragged into stuff it's just like it, i don't really know why anyone who had their like life together in a big way would with with full information about what life as an mp is actually like yes would ever pull the trigger like i i genuinely think people who run for office do so for good reasons and because they think it's a good way to contribute and because you know and and you quite honestly you know i i said good reasons and one of the less good reasons because they kind of like to be like a local a local celebrity to some extent but they don't realize that it it actually just like mostly is a pretty grueling lifestyle that isn't doesn't have a lot of benefits to it that's really it Uh, like the put aside the like question of public service which is obviously a significant one um yes but how much public service the i guess it depends which side you're targeting right like a lot of celebrities want to be in the government side and shoot for cabinet um, but if you are not going to make it to cabinet and you're going to be a backbench um, government side MP, you really are just, you know, your, your life is yeah. not that appealing. You're making $160,000 a year. Yeah. You're traveling um, unless you have the good fortune to be like in Ottawa or uh, yeah. Quebec. Well, and even that, that's, that's sort of a mixed blessing. Uh, yeah. Which then the expectation is that you work maybe uh, 85 hours a week in the case of some. um or you're traveling every weekend um back home pretty grueling flights back to if you're from a a more regional area well and you can listen to our great interview with nathan cullen that he did uh before he he retired from the house of commons where he talked about how you know the the effects of having the worst commute in canada yeah so you're making hundred sixty thousand dollars. it's not fun or 160 180 i think it is um you know, you are a local celebrity. You can contribute in, in fact, very limited ways. You're one of 338 other members of parliament. Like, unless you make cabinet, it can be a very tough job and it's not for everyone. And it's certainly not a, uh, a career for someone who is used to being very high profile and having a lot of attention in the same yeah. way it might be in the United States. In the United yes, States, and even then, being a- senators and the like have a lot more leeway, a lot you know wider runway yeah. to do as they please, and a lot less sort of menial responsibilities to show up in the House for debates, to fly home every weekend, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but we will certainly yes, not and- get through the question list if we spend ten minutes. No, no, no. I, I was just the other thing, which is even if you get to be a minister, like 
in terms of of lifestyle like you can almost certainly like find something in your life that brings you a lot of meaning you know that isn't public service uh that isn't as all-encompassing as being a minister uh so like i i would just say that there's no it's kind of like people lament the the quality of of you know our our median uh legislator and it's really no wonder just given how grueling and unrewarding and how much you make yourself a figure of you know scorn and disdain for you know whichever part of the population didn't vote for you uh it's just it's kind of no fun so that that's why we don't have a lot of celebrities in politics good next wrapping that up yeah could you talk about how the Bloc Québécois caucus has done in the current parliament? Any notable bills they introduced? Which I, I when people say this, very big Americanism, because just generally speaking, you know, you don't introduce a BQ bill. Um, there are some wow. minor exceptions. To this. Anyway, That's... notable votes, notable personalities, etc. Yes, I know. Like for instance, the NDP introduced, you know, their quote unquote pharmacare bill. Um, but generally speaking, that's kind of an unusual practice. Like you don't really hear about like conservative X bills, uh, that are like party bills. In fact, usually the conservative party is very happy to run screaming away from its members, uh, private members bills for a variety of reasons. So, uh, a little, ba- a little yeah. background on private members bills. So there is a lottery that determines the order in which private, uh, who gets to introduce private members bills that are debated. Anyone can introduce yeah. any number of bills. Um, and some MPs do that um, in order to satisfy stakeholders who are, well, do you introduce this bill? And then they'll put out a press release and it will sit um, on the order paper indefinitely because they are not anywhere in the front of the line in terms of the lottery. Um, for those MPs that get, especially you know, in a parliament like this, a few private members' bills passed. Um, but in a parliament like this, not many MPs get the opportunity to have a bill that is meaningfully debate, debated, not to mention making it uh, make it all the way through or have sort yeah, of yeah, basically like first on it. yeah, the first thirty is kind of like the sweet spot of like where you actually want to be if you want to get a vote on something. Yeah, this was obviously an unusual parliament, um, but basically the way it works is private members' bills are given an ad, uh, an allocated amount of time every week for debate. Um, So their passage through the various legislative steps is fairly predictable. And, you know, your advantage is being as near to the front of that line as possible. If you are anywhere towards the middle or the back of that line, particularly if it's not a majority parliament, your bills are going absolutely nowhere. And you can introduce as many Mm -hmm. bills as you possibly want, but cool. You can also introduce motions. They'll sit on the order paper indefinitely. And I guess it's a cool thing that your stakeholders can take and wave around as like this is our law and maybe find an mp the next go around who's willing to uh adopt that piece of legislation um but otherwise back to the question um (laughs) yes the block the block quebecois um listen no i mean i know uh just like i am familiar with the parliamentary performance of a few i don't think there are any particular standouts um on the block benches um beyond the leader their role yes and the leader the leader really has one skill <laughs> which is let me tee you up which is just like it's debating on television and even then like the problem is that he's compulsive about it it's like it doesn't matter if it's a leader's debate or not he will treat every appearance like it is a leader's debate and he will argue with journalists <laughs> like it's really something um but yeah that that is his one skill so 
on committees and such, and when it came to important votes, there were time. There were many times that the uh, that the uh, block voted with the other opposition, the NDP and the Conservatives, in trying to hold the Liberals to account or give them a rougher ride. Um, but there were also many instances in which they voted with the Liberals. I think, if I recall correctly, around particularly around some of the D and D stuff. Um, you know, I don't. There have been times where I've sort of struggled for an explanation as to why the block would do that, and none have been readily forthcoming. Wild card. Um, yeah, it's just wild card stuff. So, like, it's a little bit of a random number generator how the block exists right now, and I, I don't have any great insights into what drives them. No, and I mean, fundamentally, right, like, there was an era where, like, Quebec nationalism in, in the House of Commons was about something, and now it's sort of like looking anxiously over their shoulder at what the National Assembly is doing and sort of just, like, trying to do that. Um, and, like, their sort of raison d'être has been, like, you know, defending the French language, which, you know, all well and good, uh, and defending secularism and, like, you know, to put it generously, Quebec's particular interpretation of secularism, which I, I think is less to their credit often. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I have not been super impressed let's say with uh with what's going on over there generally speaking okay next question hit me what is something that's not politics for listeners who uh are regular listeners you'll remember we talked about politics related stuff that we don't agree on uh last time around but this time what's something that's not politics related that you guys don't agree on and uh i mean it's quite a list here i would say uh how good childhood's end is yeah, that was not a good book. It's good. It's not it was a good really book. good. It was not a good book. It's an Arthur C. Clarke novel for for anyone wondering. It was really, I would not say, among Arthur C. Clarke's best works. You ever read um, that many of them? The, the twist, the twist, a hundred pages in, had me like literally <laughs> laughing out loud, which is like I truly, it just was. I mean, I, I won't spoil it for listeners, even though it's like a fifty-year-old year book, but like, it, it's. It is an incredibly stupid twist. <laughs> uh, I thought it was actually hilarious. I loved it. Uh, I mean, I thought it was hilarious as well, but, like, not in a good way. I, it was just so, like, absurdly stupid that it just made we me... We also play a uh, very different genre of video games for the most part. Uh, That's we're true. We're all playing tedious... What, what, what is even uh, Warhammer 3 or the Warhammer game? So, yeah, so... I think uh, let me let me zoom out from the particular game. I think in general, so me and Etienne are, are guys who play a lot of games, uh, both both board and and uh, of the video variety. Um, I would say in general, Etienne has a focus on uh, complex systems and, and mastery of complex systems, where I like emergent um, games that sort of emergent story engines. So like stuff like Dwarf Fortress, I'm very keen on. Great game. Uh, the Paradox Grand Strategy games, and I don't really like them as like mid-maxing kind of stuff. I just like them because they you get a lot of fun stories out of them, uh, and they're, they're they produce interesting scenarios. Uh, Etienne's, I, I correct me if I'm wrong here. I would say probably your favorite game of all time is Diablo 2. Wow. Yes. Well, the no. Challenge, You're the sort of mulling. Is like I recognize the flaws in Diablo 2, but it was like a certain time in my childhood. So, like, no, no, for sure. But like, plays a great, uh, a great deal. In sure, that. but like, my my point about like why I completely bounced off Diablo is that for me, like, the gameplay loop is you click on things to make numbers get bigger, uh, and then you sort of like 
Google to find a good build for a class, and then you sort of just continue clicking on demons until the the build is complete, and then it's congratulations, you won, I guess. Like, I don't really it, the gameplay loop there does not appeal to me because for you it's about optimization and systems mastery, and for me that feels very cold, and it just I don't really see the point of it. Uh, I'm gonna say you're wrong, but uh... no, and that's and like look, like it's if you enjoy it, you enjoy it. It's just like profoundly not for me. All right. Uh, what is the meaning of governor and council, order of council, uh, Yeah, so... I don't, I don't know that there's yeah. etc. here. Yeah, no, I know. So basically the question here is, like, people... It, it's kind of... We have an odd... We have a lot of odd relics in our system. And one of them is the notion of the crown and parliament, right? So if you, if you go to the UK, you will see queen and council, um instead of governor and council, etc. But the notion there is that you have, you know, the crown and the, the commons and the house of lords slash the senate, and those are all kind of separate things. Um, however, as you sort of have, like, the, the sort of Tudor revolution in, in the 1500s, it sort of moved England kind of closer towards something that would recognize as parliamentary government and that sort of being elaborated in the 17th century through the the long and short parliaments and uh the english civil war and then through the restoration and then finally through the glorious revolution where you finally have a sort of stable constitutional settlement leading to the hanoverian succession in 1714 um you have the emergence of the concept of the crown and parliament which is that the crown is a sort of element that legitimizes and is the sort of animating spirit behind a more parliamentary mode of government um so that the idea of a governor in council making a decision and why we don't just say like oh it's the prime minister making the decision is that it's the sort of theory of state power legitimized like through this monarchic system that we've inherited from the uk um, so that's why we say governor and council and not just the prime minister did this. Um, and an order and council as opposed to a law uh, passed by the House of Commons is that you have the crown and parliament saying we are going to do this rather than a royal decree saying we're going to do this. Um, so that's that's the, the short explanation of why we talk in those terms and not just about, you know, prime ministerial fiat. Because the, the prime minister... You have to remember, it just means first minister, and a minister first is a servant. So it's like, yeah. Well, I mean, not so much that. It's that he, the, the prime minister, is a minister, and what is he a minister of? The crown, and who's the crown? You know, it's the governor or the queen or whomever. So that's just, it's, yeah, it is just a, a one of those like tedious relics of, of British colonialism that we still have, uh, and that we have to pretend is very significant if we're some scholars on Twitter. Sure. As, as a sort of interesting trivia process point, um, OICs, which are the document that is signed in order to do things such as appointments or regulations or whatever it is, um, different powers are held by or, or are executable by order and council. Um, in order to do those, it's not simply a signature by the prime minister. Um, it is either a decision of cabinet or there's an option or cabinet or various ministers or there's the option to do what's called a walk around in Ottawa, um, which is where PCO coordinates the signature of, I think, four ministers 
Um, and a PCO official will go around to basically any four ministers, usually one related to the thing being signed, um, and seek their signatures for the consent of this thing. Um, so if you're in a minister's office, you'll get a call from PCO and be like, hey, we're doing a, a walk around on this thing you've never heard of before. Here's what it's all about. Will your minister sign it? And like generally it's a, it's a rubber stamp. It's not um, deep consideration. For instance, if a... Uh, lieutenant governor of a pro of a province is off sick or is out of the country or whatever they have oh yeah to, they need acting they, ones. they yeah. need to get an acting one signed in uh for the day or the week or whatever it is so things like that will be walked around um good next question there you go this the question comes with a little bit of an introduction. The maritime provinces tend to feel underrepresented on the federal level, rarely seeing a focus from the federal parties or major efforts to court our votes. It's ninety nine point nine nine percent a joke, but I've been pitching a theory to my fiance that we should make a regionally based party at the federal level for the Maritimes as a whole. Sadly, leaving out a lot of Canada, I see. Uh, so no no Newfoundland <laughs> representation of the Maritime Party. Do you think such a thing could happen? Slash, how horrifically wrong does everything need to go for it to be a possibility? If it did, do you have any theories as to what that would look like as a party or what the effect would be on federal politics as a whole? Tian, do you want to start? So, I mean, listen, uh, geographically um, concentrated parties in Canada have a history of sort of insurgent success. Um, yes, the electoral system is very good for them. Yeah, of, of course. Um, so like the CCF, the history of the CCF, the history of reform, the Bloc Québécois. Are there any obvious ones at the federal level that I'm missing? Social credit. Sure. Um, so that's it, though. Yeah. One of the complaints from Alberta, from other groups, or sorry, let me let me flip that around. One of the suggestions for Alberta um, is that if they want more power at the federal level, they need to vote less conservative and more liberal to be a swing province, more so in the way Quebec is. Um, there is an active question right now with, you know, the, lib uh, the Maritimes, well, the Atlantic Canada, infamously went all liberal um, in the 2015 election. And that was sort of the initial sweep that everyone watched on, on television and realized, oh, no, this is going to be a majority. Um, if your region is disproportionately liberal, does that benefit you or does that disadvantage you in the long run? And I'm of two minds on this. I think there's a lot of statistics that show um, that those regions get more money and more support and more funding. Um, but when it comes to the push and pull of politics, they tend to be forgotten on some of the bigger issues. Mm -hmm. um, because their region does not have the same political capital that other regions have because they don't have any more seats to offer. Yes. So it's sort of... Like, it's definitely more swingy. Ways. It's more swingy than Alberta. But yeah, yeah. The, the limits of, of how many seats you can get the Maritime certainly factor in. So, like, listen, areas are advantaged by having regionally concentrated political parties um that make decisions based on their regional interests um you know the bloc quebecois is very much a testament to this they have tried to fight for like hockey stadiums for quebec city um very niche items for their agenda and they often get promises um from federal political parties i can give one in recent history is that the conservatives would give uh taxation power to the quebec province uh to the 
Quebec provincial government um, that other provinces are not able to extract or perhaps they don't desire it anyways, but also it would be very hard for um, BC to try and make that case. So it is certainly advantageous um, to the provinces, but it's also sort of problematic for the Federation of a whole because it's the breaking down of sort of the federate or the uh, the broad tent parties into regionally specific parties, which I don't think is a net benefit for Canada. Then it's just if this happens everywhere, it's just regional competing interests against each other. Um, and I think that advantages Ontario and Quebec if, if it were to happen at a large scale. Yeah, it's not a game that the the rest of the country can really win fundamentally. Um, I would also say that in the Maritimes, uh, the proud tradition of Patner's politics makes the establishment of a new hegemonic party very difficult. Unless, like the Bloc, it were sort of like very established politicians bolting away from the established parties to sort of like sit as a caucus and then running in the subsequent election. And I think you would want to have like this, you know, the the Brysons and McKays of the world, you know, and their, their sort of more modern equivalents on board. Um, but yeah, it, I think it would be, it would be tough for the Maritimes. And I, I think fundamentally, like, you know, you, you said like, they're sort of, they get the checks, but not so much the attention. And I think there's something to that where like the federal government is very happy to cut little checks here and there to, to Atlantic Canada. Snowboard, or not snowboard uh, trails, uh, skidoo trails. Snow, Snowmobiles. Yeah, <laughs> skidoo trails. Yeah, but that, that's everywhere in the country, frankly. Um, but there's not like, like. Atlantic Canada fundamentally, like, did not, was a big loser from the national policy of the late 19th century, right? Like, the tariff walls were incredibly bad for a region whose prosperity, and it was quite prosperous, was based on free trade with New England. Um, once you sort of got rid of that, they declined, and Central Canada, you know, really profited. And then, of course, you had the, the closure of the cod fisheries in the 90s, and, you know, decades of sort of, like, not great fisheries management from the federal government, obviously, that preceded that. Like, there have been some really big failures of Atlantic Canada in Canada's history, and I think that, like, that's as serious as any, you know, federal grievance in the Federation is. Like, fundamentally, Canada has treated Atlantic Canada as sort of an extractive node and, and not as much else. Um, and I think, like, certainly it would be not the worst thing in the world for Atlantic Canada to sort of assert itself more prominently within the Federation. Um, and as a value judgment, like, would that be good or bad? I don't know. Like, you know, I, I see a lot of... I think the story of Atlantic Canada is fundamentally a little sad. Like, it, you know, it's, its greatest export is its young people, and I think that's that's tragic and unfortunate. Um, I'm really downplaying but, how yeah. delicious lobster is. Lobster's great, but the, the problem is that it's like you, it's very hard to have an economy run only on lobster. Um, so I, I, I would be very happy to see uh, Atlanta, Canada get you know a more a, a more of a of a good deal and more attention to its long term prosperity from Ottawa. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know if a regional party is the best way to make that happen. It, it may very well not be, but I think the sort of long tradition of basically patronage being the 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 wheel that makes Atlantic poli Atlantic Indian politics go around has not been good for it because I think it leads to basically a cycle of as long as the checks are coming through to, you know, small writing based projects, everyone's happy, but I don't think that's really doing the province any favors, any of the provinces. Fair. So there you go. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Uh, after Nixonland was mentioned last episode, I don't remember if that was actually last episode at this point or an episode before, I was also wondering, what are some good books to read to better understand politics? Any country, basically. What are your guys' best political books recommendations? Etienne, do you want to start? Yeah, let me start with uh, just Canadian politics recommendations. Um, so one I have bought and not yet read, admittedly, is Double Vision, the inside uh, story of the liberals in power. Um, which is a book by Ed Greenspawn about the Ed Greenspawn and I'll give uh, credit to the second author, uh, Anthony Wilson Smith, who I am unfamiliar with, um, about the Crescent government. Um, I like every now and again to go back and read the books, uh, the contemporary, then contemporary books about the governments that were in power. Um, I think they, you know, there's a lot of details that are forgotten about governments. Um, so it's always nice to read those books and have a better sense of how things were viewed at the time rather than uh, the rose-colored glasses that everyone has you know, decades later. Um, more generally, a great book uh, that I think anyone in Ottawa would recommend is the Eddie Goldenberg book. Is it The Way It Works in Ottawa? It is The Way It Works in Ottawa, yes. The Way It Works in Ottawa, um, which he was a aide to Chrétien. Uh, he was like, the, yeah, the right he was the Jerry Butts. To yeah. Jean Chrétien, and it's sort of his account of uh, his years in Ottawa. Um, other ones that come to mind, I mean, from a more um, academic perspective, there's the, you know, Alec, Alex Marlin's books, or something like Governing from the Center. Um, which uh, then has its rebuttal in Ian Brody's book. Um, so, like, there is the Canadian politics book sphere is not the most complicated. It's not the biggest one. There's only, you know, a few books put out every year. So it's actually a pretty easy one to stay on top of if you're, uh, if you're proactive about it. Um, but one of the challenges is as you start to go back, the books get harder and harder to get. Like there's one book in there is that, in, yes. in uh, Canadian political history that I'm familiar with. If there, if anyone knows of others, I'd be happy to read them. Um, but it's like The Insiders, and I once lost a copy of it and had to try and track down another copy of it to replace the copy that I'd lost. Um, and that was difficult, and it's not super commonly available, so you really have to dig through the bookshelves. Um, it's handy in Ottawa to go to used bookstores because I think Ottawa is predisposed to have more interesting uh, political books at its book uh, used booksellers. Yes, and it's also funny to find books that were Signed that have by, dedications yeah. for people you've heard of. Yeah, but it's like someone gave it to the used bookstore for like sixteen cents or whatever. So yeah, it's, exactly. uh, it is kind of funny in that way. So we're a little uh, we're a little blessed here. Um, but as we said, we're hoping to do a, uh, a book. Uh, book club episode or something like that so stay tuned we will make a recommendation um, my only other recommendation is and I need to do more of this frankly is reading the books of prominent political figures I include in that uh, Christia Freeland whose book I've been meaning to read as well as Mark Carney's book um, you know the autobiography of the prime minister things like that yeah like, i would say don't I, do that i think are don't interesting and insightful waste of your time to the character of the person totally disagree um, but laurent is not of the same view it's a complete simulacrum for the benefit of, of <laughs> you know like especially no like i mean so christopher freeland's book i think is a bit of an exception to this because it was written before she had a career in politics by a good like seven eight years um 
But, like, don't read a prime minister's autobiography. Total waste of time. Um, it was before certainly he don't was read prime Mark, minister. Don't read Mark Carney's book. Like, give yourself a book. <laughs> read something good. Um, but, uh, so in terms of Canadian books, I would say one of the best I've read is uh, a the very dry, and I'm sure I've mentioned Janice all McKinnon's? the books. No, not Janice McKinnon's, which I think you still have my copy of. Have, did you ever read it? Uh, first hundred pages. I think it is still on my bedside Oh my table. god. Pathetic. Pathetic. The worst reader on earth. That, no, um, I used to be. I'm better now. I've been cured. <laughs> well, you still haven't read Janice McKinnon's book. Um, no, but I would the say. Did or the Nebula Award? No, I, I, don't, did not, I don't think no. so. I mean, it was really not a contender for those, admittedly. Yeah, it was. Um, didn't even make the short list. <laughs> didn't even make the long list. One wonders why, as a, as a work of science fiction. Um, yeah, so I would say one of the best books I've ever read on Canadian politics specifically is... Dan- uh, not Daniel Blakey. Not Daniel Blakey. Alan Blakeney's Political Management in Canada. Uh, a very dryly titled book, <laughs> yes. uh, but... Yes, but written by a former premier of Saskatchewan, uh, one of my favorite Canadian politicians of all time also, uh, who was premier for, for about 10 odd years in the 70s, uh, was, you know, just a kick-ass premier. And Political Management in Canada is basically a how to run a province uh, book. And it's it has a really good analysis of the political stakes kind of all through the life cycle of a government from election to election. Uh, of cabinet formation, of, of governing, of legislating, um, and also has... yeah, It's a very good even-handed look at both the political and administrative side of it and how they kind of intersect in a way that is, from a perspective, that is really quite rare in, in Canadian politic, political writing, which is, like, the person who had to make all those decisions as premier. Um, so, and it's co-written with a guy, with a, a Ryerson professor called Stanley Borens, I believe, don't want to leave Stanford him out. Stanford Borens. Who, who Stanford Borens? Who cares? Screw him. <laughs> anyway, Alan Blakeney King. His book, excellent. Highly, highly, highly recommend. It's really good. Uh, other great books about politics, more generally, I would say Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, which is in four volumes, and perhaps someday we'll have a fifth. Is uh, is really like it. I mean, everyone puts it on their list, but it is truly some of the best political writing of the 20th century, I think, by, like, orders of magnitude. Like, it's just, it's so good. Uh, and you know, Caro is really fundamentally concerned about the question of power and where it comes from and how it's used. And, uh, like, you know, that fundamentally is what's important about politics is, is people using power for various ends. And I think that, in that sense, is the most clear-eyed book about American politics probably ever written, um, at least that I've read. Uh, so I, I really could not recommend it more highly. Uh, it is unbelievably long, so you are in for a ride when you start reading it, but I do truly think that it's some of the best reading time you can give yourself. If you wanted to read one of those four books, I would say the third one, Master of the Senate, is really the indispensable one. Um, and yeah, like it's just uh, it's phenomenal. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I can think of really about politics qua politics yeah not really uh i'm imagining there's gonna be tons of stuff that pops up later in my head but and i mentioned nixon land a couple episodes ago and that is a good one uh but yeah caro's books are really really good and political management canada is really excellent um yeah that's where i'd start oh also yeah you could also read friend of the show's 
friend of the show, David Moscroft's great book, Too Dumb for Democracy. That was also a really good read. I was also going to say, there's a book that was really released this year that I believe was the winner of the Donner Prize um, that we've requested and are pending to receive from the publisher. Uh, and that is one that looks particularly good. Yes. Um, that would be Joe Heath's The Machinery of Government. Yes. But uh, we've yet Which to receive, receive our some. reviewer's copy of it. So stay tuned on that. Indeed. Yeah, hopefully soon. Uh, okay. How do you work? Yeah, so this is a question that's been kind of adapted, which is how do you work for a party when you have like a deep ideological or conscience disagreement with with a policy, with the actions of you know political party in whatever way, etc. So do I you want to take us away? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, fundamentally, this is like a very um, indu- individualistic question. Um, I think when you get into politics, as with any job you should have sort of a red line in mind uh, of, you know, if the political party does things that you uh, vehemently disagree with, um, you know, you should have in mind when you walk away. That doesn't necessarily mean you up and quit your job day one, um, but you, if you feel like you can no longer uh, constructively shape things or the party is not, you know, listening to your advice you know, to the, to the extent that you um, have a voice or a platform or whatever it is, you should have a red line. But, you know, to, to an extent, this isn't only true of politics, right? It's sort of like uh, when you do the workplace safety courses and say, like, you have the right to refuse unsafe work. Like, if you're a crane operator, you should also have in mind when you're going to walk away from it all. Um, Politics and crane operation are similar in some ways, but different in others. Damn. Um, (laughs) And that's the insight I want to leave you with today. Um, Because, you know, when it is your career and it's your network, it's everyone you work with, um, it's a whole ecosystem. It is much harder than perhaps crane operating uh, to walk away from and to make that decision to pull away from. So there are a lot of factors that come into play that make it a very hard uh, decision to like walk away from um, because, uh, you know, something in the party platform um, you don't agree with or something your minister is doing that you don't agree with. Because the nature of politics and government is there's always going to be many things you disagree with. um, Because if you're a thinking, living, breathing human being, Um, you fundamentally should not agree with every element of your party's platform. Um, So it's very difficult and it becomes an individual choice uh, of every staffer and every MP as to where that red line is. And I think a lot of people end up ultimately crossing their red line during their times in government. And I think you see, or not crossing their red lines, but perhaps regretting where their red line was um, after the fact. Um, but ultimately it's sort of a, a path of individual discovery that every person has to take and live with um, as they make for themselves a life in politics, which is, you know, a very unique and interesting um, career path for a lot of people. Uh, you know, the, the challenge in answering this question is like looking at, the Donald Trump staffers, I guess, is the where along the who along the way made the right decision to pull out like the Jim Mattis's of the world clearly made a 
conscious decision to pull out at some point, um, as did some others. Um, but there were certainly people who didn't have a red line and kept with that administration the, the entire from you know from start to finish. Yeah, and to give you an example of this, I mean, this isn't quite the Trump administration period, but like I Sorry, was um, in Berlin a few years ago on a, a political thing about privacy regulation uh, with you know folks from the U.S. House or uh, House Commons, U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate. And I, you know, like it was 2018, pretty, pretty early on to the Trump administration. And there were two Republicans along. And, you know, one point I, you know, in a, you know, not like a total dick way, but in a, you know, we were, we were out for drinks with the whole, the whole group. And I was like, you know, so this, like, what's up with this? Like, you got this guy, like, why are you guys sticking around for? And they were like, and you, you could tell, like, they did not really like getting this question and they got very sheepish about it. I think quite rightly, they should be sheepish about it. Uh, but the answer is something like, if if we're gone, worse people replace us. And I think there is some truth to that. I also think you have to look at that as the excuse that people have given in many, 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 things. many, many things in the past. And uh, certainly during the, the, you know, and I... During the Vichy regime in, in France, like this was something many people said after the war. Um, and I think that it's, look, human life is complex. It's messy. I, I don't think people always make the best decisions. I think to some degree people are sincere when they say they'd be replaced by someone worse and very well they, they may well be. I think some of it is rationalizing to protect their own consciences. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's not easy. And certainly like politics so asks more self-reflection of you than i think many other careers do let me take um, that out of the uh, out of a technical role that is the role of the political staff and into the question of a political party right if your political party um veers too far to the left or the right whichever side you disagree with <laughs> and you remove your membership or to the center, as the case may be, wherever on the spectrum, <laughs> and you say, "No, nah, I, I don't disagree with my party anymore. I'm gonna, I'm going to not vote. I'm going to let my membership elapse." Well, ultimately, your political party then it becomes more concentrated in the direction um, that you didn't like, and if like-minded people of your opinion also make that same decision, um, then it continues to shift in that direction, right? Yeah. And so to some extent, I think that that's fine. political parties... No, but political parties need people to hold on and to continue to fight for different perspectives within a tent rather than be spooked away. And yeah, so, I, there, like, there are limits to that, I think. There, there yes, absolutely like, are. And as I've, as I've said throughout this, uh, this conversation, you should have your red lines. Um, and there are always personal red lines, whatever the case may be. Um, but the reason the red lines sometimes are set as high as they are is because there is ground worth fighting over. Um, and there is quite a bit of that territory worth fighting over. Yes. Otherwise, I, I, you know, a third yeah. of the political party leaves every other week and the political party's in shambles all the time. It, it's worth saying that, like, our electoral system sort of mandates bigger tent political parties than, than say, you know, in the sort of northern european proportional representation world where you can have pretty niche boutique political parties that appeal to very specific slices of the electorate and you know 
go into you take your mandate your your 12 13 percent and you go into negotiations about a coalition with you know a variety of partners and you know you you come back with what you you signed right and then you can say here's what we got uh that's not how the system works so you have to coexist with a lot of people who disagree with you on various issues and yeah i mean like look there are governments in this country that i wouldn't work for for sure um and there are other governments I would work for right now. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, you sort of have to ask yourself at every step. And I think it's important to do that. Like, I think it's important to remember that life exists outside of politics, that you don't have to do this, that there's other stuff you can do with your life, and that even when you're in it, it's not the entirety of your life and it doesn't define you is is a really important thing to remember. Um, so, yeah, just just be like, you know, I, I think you should be ready to walk away when, when it's right for you. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, particularly as a political staff, because of how tenuous your job prospects are, you should always have your mind towards what is next. Because a snap election is, you know, can theoretically happen at any time. Um, and your guy might lose, uh, your guy or gal might lose, and you know you might need another a new career path. And yeah. so political staffing is often a a career choice that lasts a few years, um, and then you have to make a a new decision. Not all political staff. I, I don't even know if it's probably less than the majority of political staff at any given time end up staying in that career track at all. Um, many go on to sort of the private sector in um, comms or stakeholder relations, things that are only that aren't political fundamentally at all. Um, yeah. We often talk about the politics to government relations uh, pipeline, but I think that is actually probably the minority just because of how big that industry is relative to the amount of political staff in Ottawa. Um, yeah. particularly at the time of government turnovers where 500 uh, some odd staff are given their walking papers and let me tell you there are not 500 some odd jobs uh, lying around Ottawa in the government no. relations field for uh, staff of a now deposed government so uh, a lot of people sort of spread to the winds afterwards and there's only sort of a core that remain in Ottawa or in uh, politics at the provincial level or wherever else uh, across Canada at all Yes. Do you want to read off the next question? Uh, is this the one you've highlighted in the document? No, you you highlighted that one. You, you can pick whichever one you like, though. Oh, this one. Uh, what are some of the civil society slash lobby groups um, that are most influential on the Hill that most Canadians wouldn't be aware of? Um, wouldn't be aware of. I mean, listen, giving a power ranking of <laughs> lobby groups is not fundamentally an easy activity um because there's so many like every corporation in its own way does lobbying um the ones that immediately came to mind or some of the ones that immediately came to mind are like uh you know c10 is very salient right now so the quebec cultural industry in particular um I, I'd say fi film industries in general really punch above their weight when it comes to like the, the disparity between their economic and political power for sure. Sure, uh, because people like artists. I mean, I was watching. Yeah, and there's a lot. Of, yeah, it's a, it's a very labor intensive job, like field. It has a lot of people who work in it, and it's very visible. And of course, it has a lot of people who are good at cutting ads. It turns out. I was watching so. a uh, 
a committee meeting uh, fairly recently where a child's author uh, was one uh, one of the folks testifying, and the MPs were positively swooning over him. Um, you know, my my kids love your books, this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, that proximity to celebrity or art or yeah. culture um, yeah. is certainly something that MPs, you know, that all Canadians, everyone, um, is a big fan of their favorite author, right? Yes. Um, another one, I mean, my sort of, my easy way to answer this question is to look at the file, uh, the issue areas where there is consensus among all the parties. Uh, the obvious one here is supply management um, that the dairy industry is. Um, dairy you know, and poultry. What makes uh, successful lobbies in Canada, I think, is a little different than people's expectation in the United States because fundamentally money is not in lobbying in Canada um, in the same way it is in the United States. Um, you know, at the federal level, um, this has not been the case recently in Ontario and BC, although I think they are working towards fixing it in both provinces and have made substantial strides recently. Um, but like, as probably everyone knows, the federal donation limit is around $1,600 or 1650 or whatever we're at, which frankly is a trivial amount of money in politics uh, when your campaign costs a million dollars a day. Um, not to say it's inconsequential by any means, um, but it is just very different than the situation in the United States where people are able to, you know, have super PACs and such, uh, where the orders and magnitudes of the financing are much greater. So what makes for a compelling lobby group in Canada is, you know, it's influence. It's having a regional base. It's being in swing ridings yeah. or important ridings. It's employing a lot of people. Um, it's your economic footprint. Uh, you know, it's making a case in any of these terms that your interests are those of the country. Yeah. Um, so the farmers are successful or the uh, not the farmers specifically, the uh, supply management folks are successful because they're in important rural ridings, um, primarily in Ontario and Quebec, and they're vocal about their issues. And they're able to mobilize people. And they're able to put protesters in front of offices um, if you dare negotiate away cheese in uh, CETA. Uh, these are the things that ultimately end up becoming influential and they sort of manifest themselves over a number of times into being a an influential lobby group. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think those are sort of like the very significant ones. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's not a... I think most civil society slash lobby groups have a tough time getting a hearing or like are, you know, it's like such a obvious, like, you know, like whatever the cancer foundation is just like Canadian cancer society. I suppose it's like, well, who could be against the Canadian cancer society? Right. But at some level it's like, well, how much are they actually getting is a different question. Um, so even if there's like ambient goodwill towards something, if there's not like the consequences of not going and you know having the meetings and not like putting forward the bills or what have you or just not doing anything if the, if the status quo is where they want to be but the, this um, is another so the groups that are in the civil society groups have a different way of exerting pressure that ultimately is not the economic one i just described no like the bc but still the political one uh putting putting aside their uh their recent uh headlines 
um, is successful or has been successful for its ability to manifest sort of grassroots political pressure. Well, that's what I'm saying is that like not, if you can't, the if you don't have conventional the lobbying, they're not doing the lobbying yeah. meetings um, where they're sitting down with the minister. But if they can get headlines and exert political, like political lobbying is all about political pressure, and yeah. you know. So political pressure can manifest in many different ways, and it's the civil society groups who are able to have people write letters to MPs that are not, you know, there is a term called grassroots lobbying, but let's ignore that for the time being, just for simplicity's sake here. It's being able to manifest voters and evidence of your influence that ultimately yes. makes you a successful Yes, player. and as I can said, like, the money stuff is just not what it is in the States. And also, like, groups can't donate uh, directly um, or even indirectly. It's actually illegal for them to do that, too. Um, so if if MPs are hearing a lot, not just from a group, but from supporters of a group, if they're getting, you know, 100 emails a day or whatever about a certain issue, like, they're going to notice. Like, it, it, it adds up pretty quickly. Um, so if you, can, if you can make people feel like they're going to lose votes over an issue, you're definitely going to get into their heads yeah and i mean this is one area where like doing that grassroots work in terms of people talking to an mp because like anyone mps are susceptible to sort of the fallacy of well i heard it from five people this week it must be um something my entire riding is buzzing about right which yeah. we all know is very anecdotal and not necessarily be the case but this is this is how people operate and so Groups that are able to get people in front of MPs to demonstrate, to talk to them, to say, oh, I was going to donate to you again this year, but uh, what about this issue? Do you have a take on this first? Like all of these things, fundamentally they're humans and all of this impacts their decision making in very real ways. Yes. Um, okay, I'll take on the next question. Very long one. Did you uh, just so question? I did because it was just we're running short on time, so uh and it wasn't that good and also the premise of it looks fundamentally uh not like what we're looking at right now so uh okay so long intro and I, i've skipped some of it increasingly it seems to me the political imagination in canada is amenic and diminishing uh this isn't limited to healthcare, climate emergencies very much in mind to think about this it's not looking like we make the changes necessary within our current political culture uh what do you think it would take to expand our political imagination again any suggestions on how that could happen is this the political culture now and we're stuck with it do we have governments doomed constantly afraid to do obvious public good or perhaps you disagree with the premise uh so Tian, do you want to start well you said you were gonna have a take that you did not think um the author would be looking for is it political reform is that your answer no i mean i just think fundamentally or that we reform rather no god no God, no. Um, no, I, no. Uh, fundamentally, I think we increasingly, like, okay. So there's a great, actually, here's a great book again. Uh, a great book called Post-Democracy by Colin Crouch, which I actually do recommend unreservedly, and you should read it. Um, but the thesis of that book is that fundamentally we have a sort of arc of democracy. We're in the sort of like early, or early 20th century, late 19th century, you have like an incipient democracy that aims to take up more room at the expense of you know traditionally entrenched aristocracies or you know uh plutocratic centers of power then you kind of go through a, a mid-century sort of like period of of peak mass democracy where you have political parties that are premised on mass participation 
and that you know have you know some some places machine politics and all that stuff but at the end of the day like very much focused on on mass political participation in a, in a pretty tangible and real way and then you get into what crouch calls post-democracy which is basically a period where the realm of politics has shrunk due to a variety of things and he points a lot to globalization and i think there's a lot there where the sort of heyday of like mid-century uh social democracy like post-war sort of stuff is that you have fundamentally an economic sphere that can be managed at the national level so where you have tax policy industrial policy whatever at the national level it's meaningful now we've kind of reached an era in the era of the of the multinational and of globalization where national policy matters, but it does not matter nearly as much as it used to. And the same is true at, you know, increasing orders of magnitude at the provincial, municipal, local levels, where fundamentally you are there to, you have the sort of like, the pool of givens rather than the pool of variables is increasing, uh, where you have less and less levers to do stuff that will affect your environment, political or economic or otherwise. So you just don't have as much scope to act uh, because the, the omnipresent threat of, of capital strike is always there and you have to take it seriously. Um, and fundamentally, you, you have the choice of like either going completely balls to the wall and just trying to govern your way out of that or you reconcile yourself to the reality that like you have a a populace and voting public that is not interested in pursuing big things and you have very few levers at your disposal to do big things even if you wanted to uh and you sort of coast instead and you, you try to get reelected because getting reelected is good and otherwise the other guys win and then you're sort of in a small ball political game where the stakes are ever lower because the scope of the decisions you're actually able to make gets increasingly smaller. And that's my, my pessimistic but genuine take on uh, on Canada's political imagination and everyone else's for that matter. Uh, I would like to hear it again. Um, <laughs> but it sounded like something I would agree with. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly like one of the challenges in appraising this is that, you know, I wasn't alive 35 years ago to really have the same sense of the Canadian political environment that I do now. Um, but even sort of anecdotally today, anytime anyone mentions the Constitution, you have a group of naysayers who say, oh, <laughs> Good luck. Good luck uh, amending the Constitution. Yes, there, there is very specific to the Canadian experience, a, a pundit class deeply, deeply scarred by the experience of Charlottetown and Meech Lake, for sure. Well, yes, but I mean, the same is kind of true in the United States as well. I'm 100%. Rules yeah. here, where, you know, once upon <laughs> a time, constitutions were amended, and now they are set in yeah the, the second amendment is a giant stone tablet that says many children must die every year so a bunch of idiots can go fucking whatever i'm just gonna go there but uh god no but like that that's sort of my evidence more the initial evidence i'm presenting is that once upon a time constitutions were amended and yes. now we seem to be stuck in a uh in political neutral where constitutions are never to be touched again yeah it's political ossification must, right it's just like i think that that's very much a symptom until the end of time yeah um, as sort of, you know, evidence of this. So Meech is one, you know, 
other big projects like Conservative point to pipelines and like national projects. Yeah. And our inability to get national projects done at the provincial level. Um, it's, it's hydroelectric dams is sort of the equivalent that comes to mind in uh, Newfoundland. Well, they, they did they did actually do that one. <laughs> no, but like they have been an absolute mess in, in many, many ways. Yes. But yeah, and I think actually Muskrat Falls is a a good almost like synecdoche of this, which is that like you have a government that feels so powerless that it, it goes and, and you've abandoned, as I kind of mentioned earlier when we we're talking about Atlantic Canada, that it's like, okay, this mega project is the key to our prosperity. And then it doesn't it realizes it doesn't actually have the in-house expertise to like run this project and contracts with a series of completely crooked private contractors who end up just doing a terrible job. Uh, and then end up in a situation where like uh, everyone is mad at us. We're like a, many billions of dollars over budget. It took many years beyond what we said it would take. Uh, also, it's going to just completely decimate this indigenous food web. Okay, we're going to cap the wetlands. Oh, whoops, someone forgot to sign a piece of paper and we impounded the dam. And uh, sorry, everyone. And also your hydro rates are not going to go up astronomically and we're going to need a federal bailout. And also we're going to go bankrupt twice in a year. And it's like that, I think is kind of evidence for the thesis that it's just like government is essentially like it's a realm of increasingly shrunken possibilities with increasingly correspondingly shrunken imaginations because the toolkit is so small and so weak and the political mandate's so weak too let me add another one which is housing like the at a national level the political will to address housing just simply does not in a, in a real way yeah. does not exist uh, and instead all the political parties are happy um talking about things around the margins where like yes house housing prices in ottawa shut up like three <laughs> and it is absolutely insane and it's un- unaffordable and it has like very real consequences for our economy for future generations for present generations for you know everyone who is not presently vested in the housing market yes um oh i have a great essay i have a great essay to suggest people that isn't a book and it's sure it's yaka fagan's the deflationary block uh from earlier this year i think it is an incredibly good political economic analysis that's sort of kind of in parallel to the post-democracy thing about how we sort of created a post-war class of asset holders who were allergic to growth because it threatened their asset values um and i think that that has a lot to do with especially the housing situation we're talking about here yeah uh, so, I mean, all this to say, like, I'm just pointing at examples of, like, big problems. I mean, we haven't mentioned climate change. <laughs> yeah, also a good one. <laughs> um, big problems that ultimately our political class is un- unable to reconcile. Um, and it's a problem, and it's going to be a problem, and it's going to grow as a problem over time if we continue as a country to talk about really small ball things like tax credits for instance tax credits for um small constituencies should be really nowhere on anyone's list and yet they are perpetually um because it's electoral politics yes um and you can i mean 
you can take your diagnosis and you can put it anywhere in the political system from fundraising to the electoral system to, you know, everyone will find a different answer in there. Um, fundamentally, I liked your explanation off the top because it was sort of a systems level explanation, but you got, yeah, you got to stick materialism, baby. Number one. Uh, and if it's historical, baby, that's even better. Um, yeah. The other thing I would just, uh, recommend is, uh, Adam Curtis's great documentary hypernormalization, which is just about how there's been a retreat from reality on the part of political classes who just have found the world too complicated to actually engage with and just outsource their thinking and action to everyone else. Uh, namely the market. Um, good documentary. I don't agree with hundred percent of it, but it is certainly a very interesting one and worth a look. Um, okay. There you go. Sorry, that was not very cheery uh, as, a, as a diagnosis, but uh, <laughs> fundamentally, that's the world we live in, folks. Um, okay, so grading the Trudeau government here, which is, I think, uh, I, there's a lot to talk about here, but I think we will just give an answer, which is, what is this government good at and what is it bad at? Um, Etienne, do you want to start us off? What is the government good at? The, good, the government is good at uh, signaling it cares about issues, I guess. Yes. Um, is the way I'd phrase it. The Prime Minister, he sort of doesn't have the sense that he's in government. Um, <laughs> Boy, this is really right. Yeah. <laughs> We're really... Uh, likes- yeah, like, there is a certain mood of, like, the government cannot quite believe that it's in charge. And it's sort of like, wow, someone yeah. should really do something about all this shit. That's exactly right. And I think the best way I ever saw it put was, like, uh, I mean, it was in relation to, at the time, it was uh, Catherine McKenna showing up at a protest, I think, on climate change, but also very true of uh, Trudeau. Yeah. But, like, that they go to some of these events, and it's like, gosh, if only someone <laughs> yeah. in power somewhere... It's you, dude! It's you! You're this. the problem! <laughs> um, and they sort of haven't realized that they are the ones um, with the levers. Yes. Um, You know, a a liberal would say otherwise. A liberal would say something like, well, no, they just recognize. Doing our best and every day we can do better. The action is slow and these things take time and things like that. But fundamentally, I think the government really operates as if um, announcing things is governing. Um, Execution doesn't matter. And that messaging is everything. Yeah. Um, And so... You know, all through the system, it is all about messaging and image and signaling, uh, dare I say, value, uh, value virtue is the term. Virtue is what you're looking for. Virtue signaling. Um, yes. Rather than concrete deliverables, changing the actions of government, getting things implemented, actually changing the lives is not as important as going to the protest and signaling that you too feel this yes. way. Yeah, and I think that that speaks to that thesis of like governments know that fundamentally their their job is to put on a show, right? Like that it, it, we we live in a world of, of spectacle defined by spectacle, and politics is is yet another spectacle. And certainly, I think the the, the Trump administration was a very object lesson in how much that it just you know there for all of the chaos, right? It's like what happened. Um, yeah, what is it like? It, I, I agree with the Chen that fundamentally of this government, I think, is afraid of its own shadow in that way and also like cannot follow through on things. Um, I'm trying to think of a nice thing to say about it. Um, so let, I, let and me, I will let me say, sure, go ahead. 
I was going to say, let me say some nice things. So, taking a step back, let, let's ignore COVID year, right? Um, and the stewardship through COVID, which I'm sure, uh, which I'd like a little more, a little more historical distance from um, in order to evaluate properly. But we obviously have our objections with uh, the, li- the risk to Canadians is low, folks. Um, when you look at the Trudeau government, the first thing, honestly, that comes to mind for me in terms of like long-term changes for Canada is like the legalization of cannabis. Um, but ultimately that seemed to like not be a very big deal and not to be particularly well done. No, we should actually re legalize it. Uh, thank you. Um, the, it's dangerous and annoying. You know, poverty, um, advocates or people who work in the field of like child poverty and things like that would point to the expansion of the, uh, is it? The, the Canadian Child Care Benefit? Yeah, the, what's, what's the... Yeah, the CCB. CCB. The CCB. CCB, yes. Um, and, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who have... Uh, who it's lifted out of poverty. You know, true, um, but not a very complex... That, that's sort of the difference with cannabis, right? Cannabis was a very complex policy to try and get through um, with heaps of applic- uh, implications at like all different levels yeah. from provincial municipal like very complicated policy cutting bigger checks um, to a narrower group of people fundamentally not that complicated of a policy and while it had big impact as cutting checks to um, low income groups will always have big impact um, you know not as big a feather in the cap in terms of an example of governing prowess. Um, Disproportionate impact, absolutely, but in terms of uh, demonstrating governing prowess, I'm not sure um, it's a a ready example in my mind. I'm trying to think of, you know, big endeavors the government has done. And like, I think at the start, uh, I guess, uh, the carbon tax would certainly have to be up there. Yes. They have spent a lot of political capital on uh, environmental issues. Um, early on, they seem to be committed to indigenous issues. I think uh, a lot of people are now questioning that much more seriously than they would have um, one year into the Trudeau yes, government. Yes, and on that, I think that's a really interesting case because like, it is plainly true that no government has ever like increased the rate of spending on infrastructure, including housing and drinking water in indigenous communities than like any other Canadian government in history. Like not, not close. Like you can just, you can look at the charts of like the amount of money they're spending compared to how, what anyone else has spent. It's a lot more money. And I, I do have to give them some credit on this is that they do this, even though they know that most people to whom this is a voting issue do not like their performance and i think it would be very easy for them to be like well we're not getting any credit for this we may as well just stop doing it or you know do less and it is to their credit that they have not done that i will say on the other side of this and having been on the other side of this in a a variety of contexts is that for every step they take forward they are always undermining their own work in important ways such as you know passing the um the indigenous child welfare law which was a step forward not including any statutory funding in the bill which is not good 
And then, of course, continuing to fight uh, the Human Rights Tribunal ruling uh, from a couple of years ago in federal court. So it's very hard to look at that as like an unalloyed success, even when you look at the rate of spending, which, like I will say once again to their credit, like it is much higher. It's obviously that indigenous communities have faced such systemic discrimination and such systemic underfunding for so long that there is just an unbelievably large infrastructure gap to make up. And that is that is the reality of it. Um, but yes, like th- that's a complex file, but one where once again, I think their their kind of worst instincts let them down. Yeah, other areas like foreign policy, I think, has been uh, a ne- they've negative thought, for their record. Yeah, they've and... had like three sea changes in thinking on that file. In very big ways, I think liberal defenders would be quick to say like, uh, they successfully navigated the Trump administration, which it's hard to play the counterfactual game. Yeah, there. it is. Yes. Uh, but I would say, for instance, like, it, what is the legacy a... of Stefan Dion as foreign affairs minister? Great question. <laughs> right? Like, who knows? <laughs> it's like he was never there. Yeah. I mean, beyond navigating the American relationship, um, to the you know to this to the extent that it was skillful um not not giving credit but just saying it's hard to play the counterfactual game there with who could have who could have or would have done a better job um on all the other files i think uh canada languished um internationally um what are other major files that come to mind like economic yeah and certainly we've, we've talked about yeah we've talked about like super clusters and stuff and there it's once again just a failure of nerve of like you know coming out doing the announcement and then it's like kind of the implementation was not very impressive and and certainly like if they genuinely believed that it was going to be something that would would generate 25 dollars for every dollar you put into it you put a lot more than a billion dollars into it uh yeah i i would say and i think just generally like it's very telling that deliverology just sort of completely fell off the the agenda. Um, I had an A-tip a while ago about this that I might still have lying around about sort of the uh, internal thinking on the policy the, on results. Um, the time the time of death. Yes. So yeah, like they, they that sort of fell by the wayside, and I think that was very telling. Uh, they realized there's no credit for actually doing things, and they realized that there is a lot of credit for a lot less work in just saying stuff. So that became the focus. I think someone could write a very compelling piece about deliverology as the microcosm for, like the life and death of deliverology as the microcosm for governing in this government. Um, Like announce it with a big splash, have the celebrity creator of it in, um, make deliverology units all across the government with good intentions and then just completely forget about it. Yes. And slowly board up shop in every single and i think it's worth saying before you know like less less someone accuses of being a little too harsh on liberals here is that like the parallels between where we are now with the liberals and where we were with the conservatives in 2015 which is like a paranoid image obsessed government completely focused on re-election and not much else um i think that's telling of like what governments come into government thinking they can do and then realizing they can't do and then realizing what they actually can do is announce things and hope to get reelected. Yeah. And I mean, it gets to be a problem. I mean, this, this is for all governments, they start to run out of ideas. Um, They start to think smaller and more politically 
and they close their mind to big ideas um as they as they govern over time and so this this is why we have our democratic cycle where we seem to refresh governments every you know five to ten years um but we'll see because party platforms should be coming out you know in a month say two months from now um as the election is kicked off and then parties announce them a few weeks into uh into it i think we should wrap there um just to say that i think expectations in ottawa and uh elsewhere in canada is that the election will be in early or mid-september uh minimum writ period i believe is 36 days which puts a writ in early mid-august um no pre-election period as this is not a fixed election date so third party advertisers are are laughing for the time being um but broadly i think it is the liberals election to lose um the more of the writ that's in august public opinion in 2015 did not seem to shift very much during august uh canadians will probably be historically tuned out to this election um so i think it's going to be very tough um, for the other parties to make up ground, um, as the polls presently show the Liberals quite well out ahead. Indeed. Um, that being said, I think it's been a historically hard environment for opposition parties. And we will discuss that more on a, the next episode. <laughs> a global pandemic is not necessarily well-tread ground. No. No, and certainly uh, I think we... Let's... Yes. We'll be more than happy to talk about leave, that at greater length in the future leave it there as this is our longest episode ever. i think it may very well be and thank you once again to everyone for listening um uh, did you have a, a beer you drank this episode that you would like i to had collective arts uh sour ipa number 17 mm. very delicious it's like a dog show arts is one of canada's uh best distributed beers uh as far as i know it's i've ran into it in alberta in the maritimes in the united states um, and everything they make is fabulous. Strong recommendation. There you go. I had a, uh, it's tis the season. I had a Dominion City picnic blanket, which has just come out this year and is uh, wonderful as always. A strawberry rhubarb says Raspberry, actually. With. Raspberry. Ah, damn it. Yeah. Yes. Okay, okay. Well, very good, folks. Thank you once again for listening. And uh, you can follow us at Short Pants Pod. Uh, until next time, bye bye.